Amen. Well, we are so excited. We are in continuing, rather, our Galatians series. We are in Galatians chapter 2. So you can go ahead and turn there if you would like to. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to review a little bit, and then we will get into our new material. So let's turn to page 820. Page 820 in the Bibles provided. Galatians chapter 2. So we are in, again, kind of the continuation of this series. We're finishing up the message from last week. And so uh, Galatians 2, really the third week. But you guys know me well enough by now to know that just happens all the time. Uh, it's week through three, but we're going back a little bit to chapter two. And so we're going to be finishing up chapter two and excited to see what the Lord has for us. And so as we go through this series, uh, my prayer as I was writing this out and kind of going over not only where we're at now, but just kind of prepping and, and writing the, the messages for the coming weeks and the outlines, um, I'm just excited to see how God is going to continue to set us free. And I just pray that as you've in, in kind of embraced and engaged the one true gospel, that God is beginning to set you free some, from some things. Maybe you are a person that your personality is you are very performance-driven. And you've kind of put some of that on God. And you think God is that performance-driven God. And you've lived your Christian life really in fear. Not a fear of God and revering who God is as the mighty God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. But a fear, even as a follower of Christ, that, man, if I don't check the box, if I don't get it right, he's going to smite me down like Zeus from Mount Olympus. He's just going to strike me with that lightning bolt. I pray that as you've engaged in this content in Galatians chapter 1 and even a little bit in chapter 2, that you're realizing that the gospel sets us free from that fear. Again, we fear God, but not, we're not afraid of God. I don't know. I hope that makes sense. I have a fear of God because he is God and I am not. He is great and I am not. Uh, he is infinite and sovereign and I am finite and limited in my understanding. And so I fear God because he is God, majestic and holy and just, but he is also my heavenly father in Christ. And so I'm not afraid of my God. I'm not afraid of my father. I have a healthy fear of my dad <laughs> and I know that he is a good God. And so I pray that you've been understanding that and engaging that and been set free in chapter two. And I'm going to review just a little bit of where we've been. And then we're going to jump into the rest of where we didn't get to last week. And so if you missed last week, I do encourage you to go back online. You can watch the messages there. Um, again, uh, I did have somebody ask for notes from last week. And so uh, I'm going to send those out to that person this week so we can finish up. But if you want um, all the outlines from Galatians, um, if you just let me know once we're done with the series and say, hey, can I get all the outlines for my own personal study, we can do that as well. I can just send you the whole file. And so if that's something you want to do, just let me know when we get closer to the end of Galatians. Because if you tell me now, I'm going to forget. You can tell me today, hey, can I get those notes? Yep, you got it. A couple weeks from now, you're going to be like, how about those notes? Yep, you got it. So just wait till the end, okay? And then ask me because I forget every single thing I try to remember. It just seems like anyway. And it seems like it happens more and more as I've gotten older. I don't know. People are like, oh, wait till you get to be my age. And I'm like, well, if I'm already forgetting stuff and I'm only 40, like it's not going to get better. So, but Galatians chapter two, it's a very interesting passage. It's one again, where Paul's writing to the church and it's one that involves some confrontation. And I know many of us, we don't like confrontation. Some of you avoid it at all costs. Some of you enjoy confrontation. Some of you are like, yeah, let's go right now and hash it out. Those of you that are got a look of joy on your face right now, that's probably you. I'm not saying it's you, but if you're like, mm-hmm, yeah. 
Some of you are like, if it's a, like an awkward conflict, a conflict at work, you're like hiding under your desk. You're like, nobody talked to me. I'm not taking sides. I'm not going to get involved. But Paul has some conflict that he's dealing with here. And let me just say this. Conflict handled biblically is healthy and can be fruitful. We shouldn't avoid any and all conflict because there's times where we need to, careful Vic, you can say amen, we think you know what you mean, but your wife knows exactly what you mean, so be careful because you ain't going home with us, you know what I'm saying? So, um, but, but conflict isn't in and of itself bad. Sometimes there needs to be a level of conflict and confrontation, but if we handle it humbly and graciously, right, with the desire of restoration, and the restoring of relationships, it can be very fruitful for believers in our life. And so Paul's going to deal with some of that, and I believe it was fruitful in the outcome. So in chapter 2, Paul defends the freedom we have in Christ. He's defending the freedom we have in Christ. And the title of the message for last week and this week is just simply fighting for freedom. Fighting for freedom. Again, Paul is not fighting for a freedom to sin that grace may abound. He deals with that in Romans chapter 6. God forbid that we as believers would sin with the assumption that, well, God's grace is just going to cover it, so we're good. There are those who believe that and teach that and praise God that if I do sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. First John tells us that. But we don't willfully go into sin with this kind of get out of jail free card knowing it's grace. There's a heart issue there that needs to be addressed. And so Paul's not declaring a freedom to sin that grace may abound. So what kind of freedom is Paul advocating here? And we as Americans, we love this idea of freedom and independence. We love this. But I truly believe to have full freedom in Christ, we don't need to be independent of Christ. We need to be very dependent upon Christ. And the more dependent you are upon Jesus Christ and the grace that he gives you, the greater the level of freedom you'll experience in your life. And so what kind of freedom is Paul fighting for? He's fighting for a freedom to live and move in Christ apart from religious ritual. We're declaring a freedom to live and move in Christ apart from religious ritual, from the need to have to do anything above trusting in Christ. Repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ brings the relationship. He defends this freedom in Galatians 2 in two ways. The first way he defends this freedom is against, and we talked about this last week, so I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly. And if you're trying to take notes, get the pencils and pens ready, or maybe just wait, and I'll give you the notes later. The first way that he defends the freedom is against the Judaizers. The Judaizers, these are those that are teaching false doctrine. They're teaching the mix of law and grace. To be a Christian, you really have to become a Jew first and then a Christian. So you have to submit to these Old Testament laws. One of the big signs of the covenant for the Jews is circumcision. And so if you were a male and you wanted to become a Christian, no matter your age, you had to go through the rite of circumcision and then you could become a Christian. And it's one example of how they were trying to mix law and grace. And so Paul defends this, not only to the Galatians, but we gave you this last week, Acts chapter 15. Uh, You got to write that down because Acts chapter 15 and Galatians 2 really go hand in hand in context. Paul deals with this issue at the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And it was the council that was convened to discuss the issue of the need for anything in addition to Jesus alone for salvation. 
a huge moment of importance in the early church as even within a few short years of Jesus ascending and going to heaven and sending the spirit as the comforter, even within a few short years, the church was already starting to be confused on what it really meant to be a follower of Christ. What did it really mean to be saved and to be a Christian? There was already debate. False teachers were already rising and influencing the church, sharing these teachings and trying to convince people and sway people into religious law plus grace. This is the most needful understanding in our church today as well. I know it seems weird, but do you know 2,000 years later, after this council resolved, no, it's Jesus and faith alone. It's his grace. There's no additional works needed. Do you know 2,000 years later, people are sitting in churches this morning hearing mix of law and grace? It was resolved 2,000 years ago. And still, because people have taught something and it stuck in this certain century, in this certain timeline, and someone of supposed importance within a church said, nope, that's the way it's got to be. And I'm going to sign my name to it. I'm going to put my ring seal on it. And now it's law. And now it's mixture. It's amazing to me that this was resolved. And we have the evidence of it in, in Galatians 1 and 2. We have Acts 15. And yet still, believers are trapped in this thinking it's Jesus plus something. And so this moment is hugely important, not only for the early church, but also for us today. So the conclusion of the council, again, reviewing from last week, what did they determine? In Acts chapter 15 and verse 19, we talked about this last week, James gave his concluding point. James being the half-brother of Jesus, who's the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So he's one of the pillars of the church, Paul says. James says this, it is my judgment, or his determination, his sentencing, his conclusion, it is my judgment, therefore, that, and that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So James's point is there's these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who are hearing the gospel and they're coming to saving faith in Christ. But these false teachers are putting things in the way. They're putting roadblocks in the way, speed bumps in the way walls in some cases in the way of these Gentiles who genuinely want to receive Christ. And yet they're being told, yeah, that's fine. Just do this, 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 and this. Just join the church, get your name on the membership roll, attend for six months, write this much of a tithe check. Let's make sure your giving is X. By the way, we need a W2. We need a tax return so we can check and make sure you're giving 10%. And now that seems extreme, but I tell you, I've heard stories. Not in our church, but in churches where they literally found out what people do for a living, what they make in a year, then asked, looked at their giving, and then went to them and said, by the way, you're not giving near enough. That'll be the day. If I wasn't attending a church and someone came to my door, I said, mm, I'm going to give you the count of three to get off my porch. <laughs> or you're going to need a lot more than my tithe check, okay, to get through what you're going to happen, what's going to go on. So, so we hear these things. And it's crazy to us. But people put all these roadblocks in the way of people either knowing Christ or growing in Christ. And James's point is, don't make it difficult. See, here's the thing, and we said this last week. The invitation of Christ is very easy to understand. The Bible says a child can understand the invitation of the gospel. And in fact, we talked about this last night even at Dinner for Six. It's the faith of a child that God encourages in our lives. And while the invitation is easy to understand, choosing to receive Christ as God is working on our hearts and minds is very difficult. Because we don't want to admit we're in need. We don't want to humble ourselves. 
We don't want to lay bare before God and admit that we can't do it on our own. The invitation is easy to understand, but the call of Christ is difficult to receive. Because our sinful pride, our arrogance, it rises up in us. And that's why I think law and grace appeals to the masses. Just give me my list of things to do so I know I'm good. Give me my list of things to check the boxes to make sure that I know I'm good. It's about control. We want to control. And God says, no, 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 you have zero control. Lay before me, open, allow me to convict you of your sin, repent of that sin, find grace in Christ through faith and eternal life. You see, James says, don't make it difficult. Again, the invitation is so simple, a child can understand it, but to receive the gospel is difficult and requires us to humble ourselves before God. Doesn't mean we don't talk about sin. Doesn't mean we don't talk about hell. Making it difficult doesn't mean compromising biblical truth, removing the need for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's not what James was talking about. James says, don't add anything to the gospel. It's Jesus alone. Paul was passionate about defending the freedom in God's one true gospel. He was passionate about it. And I have to pause here and think over the last so many years, I've heard a lot of talk about us defending our freedoms. Let's fight for our freedoms. Praise God, men and women in generations ago gave their lives for the freedoms we hold so dear today. That as a nation, we are blessed with great freedoms. And I praise God to live in the nation we live in. It's got its problems, but I still will tell you, it's the greatest place to live in the world. I truly believe that. You might say, well, brother, it's not like it used to be. That's fine. I didn't say it like it used to be. I said it's still a blessed nation to live in as a follower of Christ. And you hear a lot of talk about we got to defend this freedom and defend that freedom. And I just sit back and I pause and go, are we as passionate about defending the freedoms we have in Christ and the gospel of Christ as we are about defending our constitutional rights as Americans? Are we as passionate about the gospel as we are about our constitutional freedoms that we want to fight for? And I'm not saying it's got to be one or the other. I'm just saying, shouldn't we be a little more passionate about eternal truth in the gospel than we are about temporary freedoms that we have in this world? You see, they can take away our freedoms. They can take away your right to do X, Y, or Z, but they cannot take away your relationship with Christ. Well, pastor, what if they come in and say you can't have church Sunday? That's going to be really hard for them because we're going to have church next Sunday. We don't gather because our country allows us to. We gather because the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And that's why we come together. And so let's get, a, let's get passionate about not just fighting for the freedoms we hold dear, which we should defend those freedoms, don't get me wrong, but we should be more passionate about the gospel, which sets us free for eternity. Paul was passionate about this, and he was willing to defend it even in front of these Judaizers, in front of this council. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why he was passionate. So Paul defends this freedom against the Judaizers, but also moving forward in chapter 2, He was willing to defend this freedom at the risk of even offending Peter. He defends it against the Judaizers, but he also defends this freedom at the risk of offending Peter. Galatians chapter 2. Let's get into the new material for this morning, the new text. Galatians 2 and verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. And you hear the passion here? This is conflict. 
This is not easy conversation. Verse 12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. That being these Judaizers, these Jewish teachers that were teaching a mix of law and grace. And Peter's going to stand face to face with Peter and defend the freedom in the gospel that he holds so dear. Let's pray. Father, we know we've already prayed this morning, Lord, many times, but I pray that you'd give us wisdom in your word, an understanding heart, an open mind, that we'd be able to grasp what you have for us. Thank you, Father, for the freedoms that you've given this nation. Lord, we can preach your gospel openly. And yes, there'll be mockery. There'll be some level of persecution. But Lord, we gather here today. There's no secret police outside. There's no army guards waiting to arrest us. Lord, we are gathering openly, declaring the truth of the gospel. So thank you for that, Lord, that that blessed privilege that we have. But Lord, we thank you even more for the freedom we have in Christ. That death, as we sang about, has lost its claim on me. Not by my religious doing, but by your death, burial, and resurrection. And so, Father, help us to know that we can defend the freedom we have in the gospel. But, Lord, maybe there's someone in our lives that's caught up in religion. Lord, I'm not talking about going to them and getting in their face necessarily. But maybe there needs to be a conversation to encourage them. To know that they can be set free from the doing of religion and trusting in the finished work of the cross. So, Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would go forth and be fruitful in our hearts and minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul here confronts Peter. Why does he confront Peter? Because he was concerned about the freedom being threatened by fear. See here, Peter is allowing his freedom in Christ to be threatened by fear. Galatians 2 and 11 We read that Peter comes to Antioch, and Antioch is an area where Paul has ministered and seen great fruits. That's kind of where he ended up going back from Antioch because the Jews were saying, are these guys really getting saved? Are they really believers like we are? And so this was a great move of God. And so Peter comes to the area of Antioch and sometime after Acts 15. So Paul goes to the council in Acts 15. They have this discussion. Peter makes his statements about defending faith in Christ. Sometime after that, we believe he goes to Antioch. And as he is there, he is living in the freedom of Christ. And the Bible says he did eat with the Gentiles. Now, this sounds odd to our ears culturally, but this just means he had fellowship with them. He had relationship with them. He knew them. He spent time with them. Last night we had dinner for six and we shared a meal with one another. But it was more than just a meal. It was fellowship. It was building relationship and getting to know each other in Christ. And so that's what this phrase is referring to. Peter being one of the original apostles, he was raised as a Jew. And throughout his ministry with Christ as an apostle, God had to continually reshape his thinking about the Gentiles, about what it meant to really be a follower of Christ. You can jot it down for notes. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 15 are just some examples of God trying to reshape Paul or Peter's thinking about this idea. Showing Peter that religious duty, religious obligation, religious acts do not bring the righteousness of God. You see, righteousness is not found in keeping the law, specifically the dietary law, where they couldn't eat certain things. 
but in Christ and in Christ alone. Acts chapter 10 is an amazing moment of this. And again, I gave you that a minute ago where, where God brings this giant sheet basically down full of all these different animals. And there's unclean animals on there that he's been taught as a Jewish person, you're not supposed to eat those. But now he's in Christ and he's established the church and now he's moving forward and he's going to go to a Gentile's home and he's going to share the gospel. But before he does that, God has to get his heart ready. And he gets his heart ready by saying here in this vision that he has, he says, I want you to eat. And Peter says, God, I can't eat. That's unclean animals. God, I can't do that. Still, even all this time after receiving Christ and knowing the gospel and knowing what it means to be free in Christ, he's still trapped in this dietary law, this way of doing. And God says, Peter, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And what was the point? That there are Gentiles that are coming to Christ, that you're going to go and you're going to lead this family to Christ. And they're going to be clean in my eyes. But in the Jewish eyes, they're unclean because they're Gentiles. And he's reshaping his thinking. He's getting him to remove, to be honest, some of this prejudice that he has. You see, Peter has some prejudice towards these Gentiles. And God had to get rid of that. And so as this happens, we see in Galatians 2, it's saying that when he got to Antioch, he was good. He was, he was fine. He was interacting with the Gentiles. Everything was fine. But as many of us have the habit of doing, He knew the truth. He knew the truth. He preached the truth. And then he slipped back into old ways of thinking. He slipped back into old habits. Knowing the truth of God's word and not practicing it. We read in this passage that when the Judaizers came from Jerusalem in verse 12. And they started encouraging Peter. Hey, what are you doing with these Gentiles? You can't be hanging around them. So under their encouragement. And the fear that Peter had that he might offend them. They said, let's back away. Let's separate away from these guys. Let's not have a close relationship with these guys. And Peter went along with it. He knew the truth and he went along with it because he was afraid of offending them. We also notice here in verse 13. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away. With their dissimulation. Not only Peter is caught up. The other Jews are caught up. And now Barnabas. The missionary partner of the apostle Paul. The one that came and preached the gospel to the Gentiles. He's even getting caught up in this now. Under this influence. And Paul's watching this happen. And he's getting. I imagine upset. He's getting upset. He's getting worked up. Because he's seeing these people led astray. In the King James translation. We read the word dissimulation which translates to basically hypocrisy. And if you have a modern translation, you might have a different word there, but hypocrisy is the basic translation there of that word. So Peter's getting caught up in hypocrisy. Barnabas is getting caught up in hypocrisy, knowing one thing, knowing what is truth and doing the other. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if in the last week, the last month, the last couple of months, you've got caught up in hypocrisy. Don't raise your hand. You might say, oh, preacher, I don't know. No, no, no. Did you know what God's word said about a thing, but did what you wanted to do anyway in spite of what you knew truth was? If you claim to be a follower of Christ and yet found yourself giving in and doing something that you knew was contrary to what God's word would say, no matter how small our culture or our flesh wants to make it, then you got caught up in hypocrisy. You got led astray, maybe by the influence of friends or family or our world or the fear of the flesh because you were watching the news and you just got caught up 
You started thinking about, well, Lord, what about this? And what about that? And you got fearful. But you know God is in control. You know his word is true. You know he's not advocated his throne. You know that he's still in control. But you got caught up in hypocrisy. When you break this word down in the Greek, I, I found it kind of interesting. If you know me, I love to kind of dive into the words. And as I went past the original first word that we kind of get this word from in the Greek, there's in the Greek language, there's usually one or two base words, root words that kind of lead to the word that culminates in this other word, hypocrisy. And if you break this word down a little more, and it makes sense, it actually could be defined as to make an answer or to speak on the stage, to impersonate anyone, to play a part, to pretend. See, this word, when Peter was getting caught up, he was playing a part. It was like he was an actor in a production. See, he knows who he really is. He knows what the gospel really is. He knows what freedom really is. But he allowed fear and offense and the worry of offense to trap him and to trick him into thinking, okay, I got to play this part now. When I'm around these guys, I got to play one way. But I'm around these Gentiles, I can be a different thing. I'm just playing a role. Man, is there a better way to think about hypocrisy? than playing a role to be an actor. I love that one of the definitions is to give an answer on the stage, to be in a performance. See, again, I think many of us, and by the way, I said this last night, we were sharing some things around the meal and uh, something got me angry the other day. I know, that was, shocked me too when it happened. It was the first time that's ever happened, so I was kind of surprised. But Sandra was, and you can confirm all of this with her. It's on recording for the internet. The whole world can hear this. But Sandra was helping me with something. And I won't go into details because I might get a little worked up, but it's okay. Um, it just wasn't going well. And, and I was sharing that. And I ended up, you know, I was like, all right, forget it. We're done. I go in the garage. And I, I explained it this way. I put the things I was working with away very aggressively. Every man in this room knows what I mean. I didn't throw anything per se, but it went in the toolbox really aggressively. And I was sitting there and someone at the dinner said, oh, that makes me feel better to know that, you know, the, the pastor, you know, gets upset. And I'm like, listen, if you ever want to know how real I am, just ask, I said, ask me. And then Sandra said, well, just ask me. And I was like, let's not do that. We don't want to, got to keep some kind of a veil up here, you know. But the reality is we can all fall into this trap of just playing a part. Listen, I'm not talking about letting everything out all the time, being super transparent. I mean, I understand there's situations where your coworker doesn't need to know the real you 24-7, okay? Like save that person. When you come in, they don't need you like verbally vomiting all over them, whatever happened. Like just use a little tact. But we can all fall into this trap. We go to church and we're one role, one character. We go to work and we're another character. For the younger people in here that are in school, you go to school and you're another character. Yeah, you come to church and you put on the role of good Christian. But then you go to work or you're at home or you're with your friends or you're, and this doesn't change when you're younger to when you're older. And, and now you just put on that different role. And it's just like a, a costume change. I take off this mask and I put on that one. And now I'm with this group, so I got to make them think that I'm this way and that way. It's exactly what Peter was doing. And as this is happening, as, as Peter's being caught up in playing a role with the Jews and a different role with the Gentiles, Paul can't take it anymore. And he confronts Peter on this. 
So let me just tell you, I'm so thankful in my life as a follower of Christ, people called me out on some of this stuff. When I was playing one role here and one role there, there was a friend in college who, he was really gifted in this way. He would just call me out. And it was fine because we had that kind of relationship. I'm so thankful that there was times I was allowing that to happen. And in a loving, gracious way, friends were like, hey, 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 hey. I'm seeing this. I'm seeing that. And again, I'm not saying you got to get detailed. But as you begin to pray for one another, maybe encourage one another. And if you see a loved one playing that role, maybe just lovingly go to them and say, hey, I'm praying for you. And just know who you are in Christ. You see, Paul's confrontation is driven by a defense of the freedom. In verses 13 through 19, we're going to read it together. Paul's confrontation and his concern. We'll start in verse 14, actually, because we just read 13. Verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Notice the key there. It's the truth of the gospel, not Paul's truth. Not Paul's preference, not Paul's idea, but the truth of the gospel. I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Verse 17, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the master of sin? God forbid. There's a, he's pointing out that hypocrisy. Verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. You see, he is concerned for the effect that this will have on the Gentile believers in their young faith. He does not want them to be led astray in thinking salvation is connected to anything other than the gospel. Notice that Paul's issue, again, is not a personal one, but a gospel one. It's a gospel issue. This is not a difference of opinion on a preference of music or Bible translation or what you wear to church on a Sunday morning. This is an issue of the gospel. But I believe Paul then, in a way, reminds Peter of Peter's own words in Acts chapter 15. Let's go there quickly. Acts chapter 15 and verse 7. Put a marker there in Galatians 2. We will come back. So if you've got pen or a pencil. Maybe you have little children, you have crayons in your purse, whatever. If you're a grown man and you have crayons in your pocket, I don't know what's going on, but use those. Acts chapter 15, look at verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, so this is during that council, that back and forth. When there had been much disputing, Acts chapter 15, verse 7, Peter rose up and said unto them, this is Peter speaking, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter is admitting that God has called Peter to go preach to the Gentiles and he's using Peter to preach the message of the gospel. And what is the gospel? To believe in him 
through faith. It says to hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the gospel. That's salvation. To hear the truth of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and to believe that. It goes on in verse 8. In God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. So we at the moment of salvation receive the Holy Spirit. It is an indwelling that takes place at the moment of salvation because we are sealed unto the day of redemption. It says here, and put, did I skip over a verse? Oh, no, verse 9. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And what's Peter's message here? We couldn't keep the law. Our fathers couldn't keep the law. No one could keep the law. And so now you, these Judaizers, now you want to take that same law that we couldn't live and fulfill and put that on our Gentiles, brothers and sisters who are coming to Christ? That doesn't make any sense. No, it's faith in the gospel alone, receiving of the Holy Spirit. The purifying of our hearts take place at the moment of salvation. In Peter's own words are the truth of the gospel. So why is it that Paul gets kind of in Peter's face? Because Peter knew the truth and chose to do something different. Peter knew the truth and chose to live in a different way. Again, I love that he just takes Peter back to his own words. Peter, you know this. We're Jews, but we, we weren't saved by the law. We were saved apart from the law. We were saved in the fulfillment of Christ in the law. And I would say this. I don't believe Paul was, was arrogant in this. I don't think he was cocky when he said this. I think he was humbling himself. Did you hear him say, we are Jews. We need grace. We, he was putting himself right there with Peter. We're on the same page. Peter was not rude or aggressive toward Peter in his rebuke. He merely stated the truth and allowed the Spirit of God to work in Peter's heart. His concern may also have been for Peter as well, not just for the Gentiles. Because Peter, being a Jew, knowing it took so much work for God to get him set free from all that, maybe Peter's going to get trapped in this old way of thinking, fall back into that old way of living. And Paul's desire is that Peter would be set free as well. We can learn from this example then when we speak out against teaching that is contrary to the gospel, we do not take it personally, but we are desiring to speak truth that others may be not led astray. See, we get so caught up in making it personal. Paul doesn't make it personal. He's defending the gospel. So when we hear false teaching, by the way, about the gospel or what it means to be saved, and we speak out against that, that's not a personal attack against the person that's preaching this false teaching. Or this false truth. And that's hard for our culture to understand. There are false teachers that are on the TV that are preaching either different forms of the gospel, prosperity gospel, all kinds of different things. And when a pastor or a preacher speaks out against that, they're criticized. Well, you're just judging him. Who are you to judge them? You don't know them. But it's not a personal issue. It's a gospel issue. And so when you're having conversations with people, don't make it personal. Don't make it my truth, your truth, because there's only one truth, and there's only one true gospel. It's got to be, no, no, no. Let's get back to the basics of the gospel, to hear the gospel and believe. And it's okay to discuss those things, 
even if it leads to potential conflict. Well, what did Jesus say? You think I come to bring peace? I don't come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword, a sword of division between mother and father and father and son and, and family member against family member. Because if you know Christ and your family member doesn't, there's a division there. And that's going to lead to potential conflict. And we don't run away from it. We're not arrogant or cocky. We just preach the truth and love and allow the spirit of God to work. It's also in this passage as we close that we discover the key in understanding this freedom that Paul was fighting for. Again, not a freedom to do whatever we want, but a freedom to allow our lives to be surrendered to Christ for the glory of his grace. Look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Many of you probably have read this passage. Maybe you've even memorized it. But I pray that in the greater context, maybe it takes on different meaning or maybe a different light of application. Goes on to say this. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ live in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, I'm not ignoring the need of grace, but I'm not ignoring the call of Christ to live for him. It's not a do-whatever-you-want Christianity. He says, no, no, I am crucified with Christ. The very life that I live is now merely Christ living through me. And why? So that his glory would be on display. See, that's the ultimate freedom. When we can say, Boldly, not perfectly. Lord, I want my life to be a reflection of you. I want my very breath to be a reflection of you. I want to live a life that draws people to knowledge of you. Because I don't live in my own power. What does he say? I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The freedom you have is a freedom in Christ to live unto him. Would you bow in prayer? Father God, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we ask that as we go to this time of invitation, that you and you alone would be glorified. That you would be honored in all that has been said and done. And Father, again, as we uh, desire to live in this freedom that you've given us, I pray that we would know it's not a freedom to haphazardly just live and do whatever we want, Lord. It's a freedom to to surrender, to submit to you and allow your life to live through us. Thank you that you are a risen Savior that is living and active in us through the working of your word and the Holy Spirit. I pray that if there's anyone in this room right now that's been playing a role, playing a part, one way over there, one way over here, and everything in between, Lord, I, I just pray that they would be drawn to the knowledge of the freedom that is in Christ. That they can surrender those things. They don't have to pretend to be one thing here and one thing there. They just can live for you. I know it's hard, Lord. But thank you for the comforter and the strength that you give us, the spirit to do what you've called us to do. And so I pray, Lord, as we have this time of invitation, that maybe there's somebody in the audience that would come forward and bend a knee and just spend time with you, Lord. Maybe somebody that needs to know Christ as their Savior, that has never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, the only way to find everlasting life. Maybe there's somebody that would come and say, Lord, you know me, you know my heart, I've been playing a role, and I'm done. I just want to be yours. 
Maybe somebody would come today and pray that prayer. Lord, maybe somebody would come and just bend their knees and say, Lord, prepare my heart and my mind to receive this communion that you would be glorified. Father, we thank you for all of this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Would you respond this morning as the Lord leads as we're led in a song of invitation? Whatever it is that God is doing, would you come and pray? Maybe you've been playing that role. Maybe you need to be set free. Maybe you need to live in the freedom you've been given. Whatever it is, would you respond this morning as we sing?